0: If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are going to continue.
1: We're going to continue.
0: Oh, there we go. We're going to continue in our series in 1 Thessalonians. And um, as you find your place there, uh, we'll be in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1 through 3 this morning. I don't know if you guys have ever watched. a show on National Geographic Channel called Doomsday Preppers. Um, I guess the word that I would describe for those type of people are fanatical. Um, And I apologize if you're one of those fanatics. Um, People that are devoted in their life to living in the anxiety and the fear of the end of the world. They have amounted and, and... Mounded in their in their in their in their dwelling places and all around the country, uh, spots of I think I would call it a survival habitation. Uh, they uh, I watched one show where a man uh, bought shipping containers, uh, empty shipping metal shipping containers. You see them in the back four wheelers uh, and tractor trailers, buried them in the desert, put them together. You know, basically, uh, you know, united them to become a makeshift bomb shelter for his family. I saw one man that spent over seven million dollars fortifying his home in every way so that there's one access of sunlight that that uh, this family can enjoy while the rest of his home was so secure from the ventilation sh- uh, system to. Uh, rations of food, to guns and ammo, to gas masks and oxygen. Just, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And, and I think about those things, and I think, what are these people, what is their end goal? What is their strategy? And that is to survive what they consider the end of civilization. Now, they would maybe consider it the end of the world, because they plan on surviving and continuing in this world. And by no means, I think, are these people thinking spiritually or biblically. And maybe you have a survival kit at home. I, I hate to tell you that uh, my family, we are the least prepared for any catastrophe. We will be knocking on your door for beans and, and you know corn and any type of rations that you may uh, have buried. And hopefully, uh, as your pastor, you will be willing to share a little bit um, with my family. But I guess the question that I want to ask you is, how have you prepared, not for the end of the world in a sense of a catastrophe, a natural disaster, but how have you prepared for the end of the world when Jesus comes again? That's the question I want you to ask. So instead of us being doomsday preppers, I would say, are we judgment day preppers? Because that's kind of the theme and the idea that we have been talking about as we are going through First Thessalonians, this eschatological focus on the end of the world, on the end of time. and, and we spent some time talking uh, last time about um, when Jesus will return, and the, uh, as people call it, the rapture of the church, the catching away of believers. And as you guys uh, well know from this point from that point on that um, that my views may be a little different than some here in the south and that is that I, I, I hold to a position that, that as as the church is, is raptured and, and taken away um, that, that we will go and meet the Lord in the air but that we will come back to the earth in the reign of Christ. And I appreciate you guys coming back this week. Uh, obviously that wasn't too disappointing news for you uh, not to return. So thank you. Um, Maybe you just want to hear a little bit more before you decide to leave, and, and I understand that as well. Um, but, but what I want you to think about this morning as we talk about the end of the world and the end of time and the judgment day of God, what I want you to think about, and, and, and in your mind, prepare your heart for, number one, am I prepared for this judgment day? And, and secondly, as I stated That in the kindness of your heart, if you would somehow help our family in in the sense of a natural disaster, sharing your water and sharing your food, are you helping other people prepare for the judgment day? Let me uh, read these verses with you this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And just, just take note that in Scripture, as this was written, as the New Testament was written, There was no chapter breaks. There was no numbers. There was no headings. So literally chapter 4 verse 18. Bled right into chapter 5 verse 1. There was no break for us. In the original language. It was uh, was literally written continual uh, letters. Greek letters in the alphabet. There was not even spaces between the letters and, and words. It was just continual text. So commentators and translators have come in and said, okay, we think that Paul is changing subjects here, and, and so we're going to put that. And I could show you myriads of different examples where I think chapter breaks and, 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 and divisions are, are, are not correct, that they're actually dividing the subject matter, and I think this is one example. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. We might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one, one another up just as you are doing. Now, as we stated before, Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians' heart more than he's speaking to their mind. And what I mean by that is he is preparing them to focus on the way that they live among the people based upon what they believe in their, in their minds and in their hearts. So uh, as he focuses on the coming of the Lord Jesus and the end of the, of the world and the, and the judgment of God, what he's teaching them is not fill your brain with these facts and these timelines. What he's teaching them is how are you going to live among the world and among the people in light of this truth? That's why he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, to encourage one another with these words, to encourage people or to encourage the other believers about the hope that we have in Christ. So what is he saying? Don't just know that Jesus is coming again, but use this truth to encourage one another in the hope that we have in Christ. You should not grieve as other people in the world grieve. You should grieve with hope, and when you see other people grieving with hope, encourage them. That's action. So you could say, as many people have said, before me that our eschatology produces an ethic within us. How do we live in the world based upon what we believe? We know that Jesus is coming again. We know that there will be a day when the trumpets will sound and the angels will come and the the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive will come and meet the Lord in the air. And that should affect how we live in this world. So that we are not mounding up as doomsday preppers survival kits that will keep us alive on this earth because we believe that we will not be alive on this earth because of uh, you know, MREs and other things that are you know, this, this tasteless food that is somehow you know, has enough nutrients to make us survive. But instead that we will live because Jesus Christ allows us to live eternally with him. He will be our source of survival. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture, many theologians throughout history have said that Paul is now changing subjects from the coming of the Lord, which is event A, to the day of the Lord, which is event B. And depending on your eschatology, some are going to say that A happens at the very beginning of, of the end of time. They would say that the church is raptured, it goes up to heaven, it lives in heaven with Jesus for seven years. During that time, the earth faces tribulation. And then at that time, Jesus comes back into the earth, which is that the second coming for them. He brings with His church and with His saints, and for a thousand years, those saints reign upon the earth. And then after that thousand years... There's a time of of revolt and and apostasy and evil with Satan being loosed and then finally destroyed. And then the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord. Where there's judgment and there's punishment and there's wrath. And they would say that in the first two words of chapter 5 now concerning, peri-day in the Greek that this is a break into the transitional thought of Paul to say, okay, this is one thought, and now this is a second thought. And that division, that break in thought, is is an evidence for them that this is another day, another time. And of course, I have to disagree, and I'll give you some reasons why. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians and other books like 1 Corinthians takes these um, subject matters to heart because a lot of times he has received questions from churches about these issues. Matter of fact, hold your place in 1 Thessalonians and, and flip over to 1 Corinthians. We're gonna, I want to show you a couple sections here of Scripture where Paul seems to be breaking with a subject matter and yet continuing his flow of thought in these subjects. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 1, Paul spends a great deal amount of time in 1 Corinthians talking about the subject of marriage. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the matters which you wrote. There's your word, Perry day Now concerning the matters which you wrote. If you look before chapter 7, you're going to see that he's not talking about marriage. So this is definitely a time when Paul takes this theme of marriage, and he is saying, let's go to a new subject, a subject that you have asked me about, concerning, that he even says, now concerning the matters which you wrote. But if you notice in chapter 7, verse 25, Paul uses the same language and still continues to talk about marriage. He says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no good command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And he continues through the rest of chapter 7, talking still about the theme of marriage, even though in the midst of that topic, And that theme, he broke in the middle to say, now a part of the discerning or uh, considering the question that you had asked me, let me go ahead and answer that as we're talking about the theme of marriage. Chapter 8, verse 1, he says it again. Now concerning food offered to idols. Different question, different topic. But yet in verse 12, Verses 1, again, we see chapter 12, verses 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. And so he's answering these questions from these people. But look again in chapter 16, verses 1. And notice, by the way, these are all chapter something, verse 1. That's, again, the translator saying, this is a new topic. I'm going to make this the heading of a new chapter. But those are not inspired. Chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul is talking about his travel and the collection of of money that will be given. But notice in verse 12. Now concerning your brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. So here's my point. My point is this, is that we can't always just take wholesale that Paul is changing complete topics of Scripture by using this introductory phrase, but concerning. And that would be an evidence that I would use in saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as he's talking about the rapture of the church, just because he goes to chapter 5 verses 1 and begins talking about the day of the Lord and uses the phrase, but concerning, doesn't mean that those are separate events. Because what he's dealing with is he's dealing with a topic, the day of the Lord, which has been used throughout all of the Old Testament and the New Testament time, where the rapture wasn't necessarily considered in the Old Testament. So what Paul is using in chapter 5, verses 1, with the phrase day of the Lord, chapter 2, he's actually using a phrase that will be familiar to the church, the Jewish people, because all throughout his scripture in the Old Testament... The old the Old Testament prophets referred to the coming of the Lord as the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? My opinion and my interpretation of these passages is that it is one single event included with the rapture of the church, so that Jesus does not have to go secretly to heaven and then later come down and judge the world, but that he will go up, meet the saints in the air, come down come down in glory, come down in majesty, come down as the conquering king, and thus judge the wicked, the evil, with the saints accompanying him. And so I don't see a break and a necessary subject change. I actually see a complete fluid system Even a chronological timeline of first Jesus comes, then he returns, then there's the day of the Lord. And Paul says in chapter 5 verse 1, you have no need for anything written to you about these things. I've already taught you these things. You already know what this day of the Lord is. How do they know? Well, not only did Paul teach them, but throughout their study of the Old Testament as Jews who became Christians, they understood the day of the Lord. Let's look at a couple Old Testament passages. Some I'm just going to ask you to notate in your notes, but one is Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, where the major prophets gives a great description in the Old Testament of what the day of the Lord will be. Isaiah chapter 13, starting in verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look against one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with anger, or with fierce wrath and anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind the gold of offer. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. And so on and so on. So here we have uh Isaiah specifically talking in that context about a a, a people that are going to come in and the the judgment that he is going to use against Babylon and the people that are um, that are uh obstinate toward the Lord and and idolatry or idolatrous toward God, and yet as most Old Testament prophets many times spoke contemporarily toward a certain context of situation and yet they were also speaking on a grander level on a historical level of not only the judgment of God for those people the Babylonians but on a great scale of total judgment of the world other other verses to note we're not going to turn to all these Jeremiah chapter 46 calls the day of the Lord of the God of hosts a day of vengeance Joel chapter 2 verses 1 says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Amos chapter 5 verses 18 through 20, Zephaniah chapter 1 14 through 15, all these things describe the day of the Lord as a day of wrath, as a day of vengeance, as a day of anger towards sin and unrighteousness. We even read in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And folks, I give you all these verses... Not just to throw the Word of God at you in in multiple places, but to say the whole of Scripture teaches about the day of the Lord. And as we see its descriptions, the day of the Lord is, is personified as a day of wrath and judgment against sin. And so we know that and we understand that this day is coming and that, that as Jesus returns and, and no matter where you are on the eschatological uh, spectrum, whether it's when Jesus comes first or af- after the millennial reign, it's still coming. And that, and that command, that, that expectation, that preparation that needs to happen is on us because we have been given the knowledge that Jesus Christ will judge the wicked in the world the evil in the world, the people in this world who do not know Christ. And so if that's you this morning, then this command is pretty simple. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, you will be judged for your sin. There will be a day when no longer will the grace be applied to your life. If you do not trust in Christ, you will no longer have an opportunity to believe in Him. Once Jesus comes again, you must know Him or it is too late. He will cast you out and say, I never knew you. As in the parable of the ten virgins, those coming and knocking on the door, the door to heaven in a sense, will not be opened for you because you do not know Jesus Christ. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we understand the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. But we also have to look at the day of the Lord as a day of mercy and grace. It is not just a day of judgment, because if you know Jesus Christ, you that day are receiving mercy and grace from the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, if we turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, we read this. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. And even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is Paul talking here about about judgment and wrath? He is talking about the perseverance of the saints and the protection that God has granted us and promised us in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9, God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now this is where the eschatological debate gets really silly. Because people will say that this day of the Lord Jesus is a different day than the day of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus' name is affixed to the end. So they would say that the day of Lord is at the end of time, but the day of Jesus Christ is the rapture of the church. And I, I, I just, I, I really, and I'll use this phrase again: that is linguistic and spiritual gymnastics to say that by adding the name Lord Jesus Christ at the end of day of the Lord and, and calling that a different day is trying to push into the text what's just clearly not there. Paul calls this the day of the Lord Jesus as a day of mercy and of grace. And that does not mean because Jesus Christ has added to the end that this has to be a different day than the day of the Lord fully. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Dealing with an issue of, of church discipline. Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, a man who had committed sin in the church, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul is saying, for this man's good in the midst of of church discipline, deliver this man to Satan... So that in the, the delivering of Satan, meaning the, the, the breaking of fellowship, we see that, we pray that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. Not his spirit is judged, his spirit is saved. So what does it show us? That the day of the Lord is not just for judging, but it's for saving. It's not just a day of wrath, it's a day of mercy. Mercy. And Jesus makes this completely clear. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. I promise we're going to get back to 1 Thessalonians. This is a systematic theology this morning. This is the greatest example of this day of the Lord. With a greatest example for us, even though none of us have probably ever grown up on a farm, none of us have ever really had a livestock quantity uh, around us. Maybe some of you do. Praise you for that. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus teaches this, this truth to an agricultural people that would completely understand from the livestock that they contain, He teaches this. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Notice the language here. When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Jesus says, or they say, and when, we, when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you as you did to the one of the least of my brothers you did to me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison or did not minister to you? And He will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. What it appears to me from this text, Jesus comes, and in a day of judgment, He he separates and divides the unrighteous with the righteous. Not righteous in themselves, but righteous in the righteousness of the One who has saved them, Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is when Jesus comes again to this earth in all His glory and all His majesty accompanied by the church where He will pass judgment upon the earth, the whole earth, all the people within it, judged as guilty or judged as innocent. Which one are you today? Are you a part of the the sheep, the true church, the people of God who have trusted in Jesus Christ Who He will look at, not as righteous in themselves, but will look at as those who have trusted in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Are you on the other side with the goats, the ones who have worked their way, trying to gain access to God, trying to please God with their lives and and their good deeds and their moral accomplishments? The goats, the ones rejected, are guilty before God because they have never trusted in Jesus Christ. They are guilty because of their rebellion against God. They have failed to live according to the holy standard of perfection that God has placed upon all people. Matthew 5.48 Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. They are guilty before God because they were born into a state of sin like their father Adam. And they sinned because their life is indwelt with the nature of sin within them. And they will face the judgment of God because they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. So number one, we have to understand what is the day of the Lord. And number two, in my remaining time, I want to focus in 1 Thessalonians 4 or chapter 5 on what do we see, how does the unbelieving world respond to that day? Just three verses. Number one, the unbelieving world will not expect it. Look at what they say. They say, verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Paul tells us that this day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and he uses an illustration that not only Peter used, but Jesus used. And the point is the suddenness and the imminence of this day. But the interesting thing, folks, is that as believers in Jesus Christ, as people who have been given this understanding, we are to expect it to come. We are expected so it will not come upon us like a thief. We have been given the understanding it will come upon a thief like a thief in the night to those who reject the truth that states when it will come. Now, Jesus does not say exactly the day or the hour. He does not know But He does give us warning signs. He does give us understanding. And that's why He says be awake and be sober. Expect the day of the Lord. The lost world around us will not expect it. They will be completely caught off guard. And isn't it interesting that their words will be peace and security? This is the whole premise of sin in our world is a false reality of of understanding. They look around and go, life is great. I'm at complete peace. I have complete security. And yet they have rejected the only one who can give them complete peace and security. Only through Jesus Christ do we really have peace. Listen, If you're looking for complete peace in the world, you're not going to find it outside of Jesus. You won't find it in your families. You will not find it in your careers. You will struggle and stumble through this world thinking that you have found peace, thinking that you have found security, and as you understand it probably, that that can always be ripped out from underneath you. And yet Jesus Christ says, I will give you perfect peace. That's why when we struggle and we go through difficulties, what does the Bible teach us? Go to prayer. Do not be anxious for anything. But by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God and what? The peace that surpasses all understanding. Whose understanding? Our understanding. Only the Spirit-given, God-ordained peace that comes through Jesus Christ that overcomes us is what we need. There's other passages that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24. You don't have to turn there referring to the the sudden imminent destruction that people will face. He refers to the days of Noah. When the coming of the Son of Man will come, he says, it's like the days of the, of the days of Noah before the flood, when everyone was eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, and that is the world that we live in, and that is the challenge for us who who are given the commission to go out and warn people of, of, that, that are not expecting the day of the Lord to come. The day of the Lord is coming and we cannot control it. We cannot keep it from coming. We do not have control over the sovereign God of the universe. But we can prepare people and say, expect it's coming. Know that it's coming. We're told that Noah warned of the coming flood. We see Abraham going and warning Lot and his family of the coming judgment so that they can escape. And so also we can warn the lost world of their impending doom. Not only will they not expect it, but the Bible says they will not escape it. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Why will they not escape? Because they reject the truth of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 tells us that the, the a description of unrighteousness and sin is the act of suppressing the truth. That's what sin is. And so what we are challenged and commanded to do is to go out and warn people of the coming judgment knowing that they could possibly suppress the truth and if they suppress the truth, they will not escape the judgment. But that does not remove our warning. That does not remove our commission. We must warn them that if they reject Jesus Christ, they will not escape destruction. This destruction is not an annihilation where they cease to exist and become dirt in the ground. This is not a reincarnation where they're transformed as some lesser being like a little chihuahua that wears clothes and fits in a little purse. Their destruction is a couple things. Number one, separation from God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us That the wicked will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now to a lost person, being separated from the presence of the Lord is not a scary thing. But if they begin to understand who they are and their purpose in this world, that they were created to have fellowship with God, that they were created in the image of God then the ultimate torment and the ultimate destruction will be to be away from His presence forever. They were made to be in His presence. They were made to enjoy His glory and His majesty. And all throughout their life, just like we did before Christ, we try to fill that desire for God with other worldly things, other earthly things. And they are always temporary things that do not Do not compare to the glory and the majesty of our God. And so forget the burning and the anguish and and the, the wrath of God and pain and suffering. First focus on the fact that the lost people of this world will not be with the one who created them and who they were made to be with for eternity. That is the greatest punishment. And we see that in the life of our Savior, who hanging on the cross was separated from the Father. Moments of facing the wrath of God upon Himself for our sin, there was a separation. The greatest anguish and the greatest pain was when Jesus Christ was separated from the Father on our behalf facing the wrath and the anger of God against our sin. But the Bible not only describes the destruction that we will face as separation from God but in eternal anguish and suffering we have verses like Luke chapter 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man who goes to hell basically describes his experience like this. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you, are, you in your lifetime received good things, And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Eternal anguish, eternal destruction, no escape. Mark chapter 9 tells us that hell is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life will be thrown into a lake of fire. Matthew chapter 13 tells us that hell is a fiery furnace, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. All imagery to describe the eternal anguish and suffering of people who are without Christ. They will not expect it, they will not escape it, and they are not prepared for it unless you and I go and declare the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a free gift of eternal life for anyone who will believe. It is a free gift that we are are commanded to go and to proclaim. But in that free gift, we are told that people must repent and believe the gospel. Repent meaning turning from the things of the world that they love, that they crave, that they desire. Turning from their idolatry, turning from their sin, and turning toward Christ who is holy and blameless and without spot. So we can say then that the gospel message is a free gift, but it's not always an easy life. It's not an easy life. If you want to to escape the wrath of God, if you want to be in heaven because it just seems like a really scary place, but you're not willing to repent and believe the gospel, you will not make it. Jesus is not offering an escape From a treacherous place, He is offering new life in Him. He is asking a commitment from you to believe and trust in Him, and He will give you new life, and and that new life will be difficult. You will face trials, you will face tribulations, but you will be protected and preserved under the arms of a holy, righteous, the holy, righteous Creator of the universe. And you will be preserved until the end. So that is our call. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came to them, His disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has given us this command to prepare those for the judgment day. You and I have an opportunity. Last week we had an opportunity with 30 boys from different parts of of the Mid-South to prepare them for the day of the Lord. This coming day that follows Monday, you'll be at work, and you will have an opportunity to prepare people for the day of the Lord. And folks, I'm going to tell you that with when that comes, that opportunity to share that comes, there is oftentimes fear, resistance. Satan does not want us to prepare the people the day of the lord satan wants us to to lay the gospel out so he can come and snatch that seed away and we must be diligent to prepare ourselves knowing that we first have a relationship with jesus christ that we have trusted in him and that we must prepare others as well we cannot save them but we can share with them the way of escape And so, brothers and sisters, that is the message for us today. That is the way that we are commanded to be obedient to the gospel call. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. My prayer is that you will go and proclaim that message today. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, He is offering this message to you. The day of the Lord is not yet here. And you have an opportunity to believe and trust in Him today, knowing that He has accomplished all that is needed for salvation. That He has accomplished all that is needed by His death on the cross, by the life that He lived, the death on the cross, and His glorious resurrection. All those things are accomplished, not for His sake, but for our sake. Would you believe in Him and turn from your sins today. Let's pray right now. And I'm just going to take a moment to pray. And what I'd ask for you to do, if, if you feel comfortable. We're going to pray for those in our in our life. Our families, our friends that, that don't know you. Or that don't know Christ. That we know, that we care for, that we love. And if you want to voice their name out loud, you can. Or you can just pray that silently. But I just want to take a moment. Adam, I'm going to ask Adam just to play. And, and we're just going to pray for those people. But you know what? We may need to pray for you. And so our prayer first is, is that, God, if there's people here this morning, would you save them? Because the day of the Lord is at hand. So we're going to pray, and, and I'll close us as Adam plays.